by stimulating intellectual conversation? Are you turned on by the idea of engaging with thought leaders from across the United States? Do you go gaga over exploring important ideas from influential books, research, and essays? Then welcome to Curiosity Porn, the place you can satisfy all those intellectual urges guilt-free. Your hosts are Dr. Guy Crane, Professor of Philosophy at Rose State College, and Professor James Davenport, Professor of Political Science at Rose State College. However, the views expressed here are solely the views of the hosts and their guests and do not reflect the views of Rose State College, its administration, faculty, or students. And now, here are James and Guy. Good morning, Dr. Crane. Good morning, Professor Davenport. How are you doing? I am doing pretty well today. Me too. Me too. I'm kind of excited about our guest. We're going to talk about, introduce him in just a second. Although I did want to mention our first episode, we talked a little bit about outrage porn. Yes. Right? I got to stay off Twitter. I'm just saying. Uh, That's good mental health sound advice for everybody. Feeds my outrage porn addiction a little too much. It's and, almost like uh, the algorithms are designed to do that. You would think, right? Yes. So uh, I was thinking about that. I was on there the other day. And it's just like everything on there is like trying to get somebody upset about something, right? So I think I need to pare back. And you're suggesting mm-hmm. to me that it works on you. Uh, I catch myself. So I catch myself. But I, I definitely am like, I got to put this down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I stay away. All right. I'm going to introduce our guest, who I'm very excited to have with us. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fowler is a professor in the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. His research applies econometric methods for causal inference to questions in political science, with particular emphasis on elections and political representation. Specific interests include causes and consequences of unequal voter turnout, explanations for incumbent success, the politics of policymaking in legislatures, and the credibility of empirical research. He is also an editor-in-chief of the Quarterly Journal of Political Science and author of Thinking Clearly with Data. Anthony also co-hosts Not Another Political Podcast with his University of Chicago colleagues, William Howe and Viola Judah. Anthony, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to it's great to be here. That was a really nice introduction and a fun uh, fun way to start the show. I also get outraged and sometimes enjoy being outraged, but I am I'm not on social media for precisely that reason because I don't want to post something that I'm going to later regret. Yeah, I think that's always uh, the temptation. There is you're going to jump into an argument and you're going, then you're going to say something. And you're like, I really wish I hadn't said. that. I'm trying to get out blood pressure meds, so I'm definitely not getting on there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know. Facebook seems to have lightened up. Maybe it's of course a lot of folks. You know, I'm old, so I'm still active on Facebook. I guess I am as well. The younger the younger folks, not so much. But it doesn't seem. I don't get the same kind of outrage kind of stuff that I do on Twitter. Well, I've just carefully curated my feed on that one to make sure I avoid that stuff. Yeah. Uh, All right. So we have uh, a few kind of early rapid fire questions just to kind of set the tone. And then we're going to get into a work that you were part of talking about civic duty voting. And Guy and I have all sorts of questions. But before we do that, we want to let you kind of lay out what you mean by that, how it would work, this type of stuff. But let's get to uh, these others. So uh, how did you get into academia and why political science? 
Sure. Yeah. I think it's a lot of just chance. I, I didn't grow up knowing anybody in academia or having any connections to that world. But as soon as I learned that that was a career option, I kind of wanted I wanted to be in that profession. I had a great biology teacher in high school who took everyone to the Salk Institute in San Diego. We got to meet scientists and hear about what they were working on. And it was the first time I realized that you could get paid for just thinking about hard problems and trying to learn more about the world. And, and as soon as I knew that was an option, I kind of, I think I thought, I think I wanted to be a researcher and a professor. Um, and I was, I was an undergrad major at MIT. I was a biology major at MIT and was doing a lot of genetics work and so forth. And just on the side, partly because they forced me to be somewhat, you know, to take some social science classes. I took some political science and economics and I found that those are my favorite classes. Those are really interesting questions. Um, in some ways more interesting and more important questions than what I was studying in the genetics labs. A lot of the same scientific tools applied and I kind of got excited. I got great mentorship from professors and ended up applying to graduate school in political science. I was going to ask, because if you had some economics classes, because you talk about applying economic econometrics, why do I have trouble saying that this morning? So how did that happen? So you just took a mix of economics courses with your political science classes as well? I did. Yeah. I mean, I think I started off, you know, at MIT, they just make you, it's not, you know, it's not a broad liberal arts college. They just, they tell you, you have to take eight courses in humanities, arts, or social sciences. And me being the sort of narrow-minded thinker I was at the time, I thought, well, I'm going to take the most scientific of those courses that I can, because I think I want to be a scientist. And so I took, I took a class on game theory. I took a class on the quantitative study of elections. I, I ended up taking a class on public finance, which was which was really interesting and fun and kind of technical and, and so on. And so I, I got exposed to these approaches in, in social science that are a little bit more technical, a little bit more mathematical, and really liked them. And I, when I was in graduate school as well, I continued. I took a lot of classes in economics at the same time I was taking classes in political science. Very cool. Uh, all right. So question number two. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Tyler Cowen. He's an economist out of George Mason University. He just published a book talking about who's the greatest economist ever. And so that's what prompted this question. I'm a political scientist. You're a political scientist. Who do you think is the greatest political scientist ever? So I'd like to think that political scientists don't do nearly as much navel gazing as economists do. And I think that's to our credit. Uh, we don't have a Nobel Prize and we don't sit around making lists of the greatest, you know, and the best under 40 and so on. And I think that's mostly to our credit. But of course, there are lots of political scientists that I admire and respect. Um, Harold Gosnell is one name that comes to mind, who was a political scientist at the University of Chicago roughly 100 years ago. And he was probably the first person to really seriously bring quantitative evidence and experiments and scientific thinking into the study of politics. So he's someone, even if even if you know none of us knew him directly, he, he shaped the kind of work that we do and the, and the way that we think about the world. My advisor, Jim Snyder, is also, I think, a fantastic political scientist, and I, I try to emulate him as best as I can. He's a very serious empirical researcher who also engages seriously with theory, thinks a lot about causation and research design, and is not confined to one narrow topic. He said he's a very broad range of topics. And so I try to, you know, I try to emulate him in my research career as much as I can. Excellent. Excellent. All right. What are you currently reading, listening to, or watching? I try to do a lot of reading. I enjoy doing a lot of reading outside of my, you know, academic areas of expertise. Um, at the moment, I'm a golfer and it's winter in Chicago. And so I've been reading some golf books. So I'm, I'm currently reading a biography of Alistair McKenzie, who was a great golf course architect. 
Um, I recently read uh, Somebody's Fool by Richard Russo. I, I love all of his novels. And, and if you want to learn about, you know, working class America and maybe even understand the rise of Trump and so forth, I think Richard Russo's novels are actually a great way to do it. And I will briefly plug, my wife is actually a novelist as well. So I read all of her books and I read many drafts of her books. Her name is Gloria Chow. And I just very recently finished a new draft of one of her books that's under contract, but hasn't come out yet. But, but of course, all of those are fantastic as well. Fantastic. What do you think is the most misunderstood part of your work? I hope that my work isn't too misunderstood. One of the regular academic debates that I engage in is about the health of democracy and the competence and rationality of voters. And I often end up on the side of defending democracy and defending the voters and, and saying that things aren't as bad as people think. And I'm sure my critics will, will say that I'm overly naive and I have this simplistic view of the world that every voter is hyper-rational and hyper-informed and behaving in some first best way. And obviously, I think that would be a misunderstanding of my work. Um, but I think, you know, but I think in the aggregate, the system works better than people would think. And, and I'm happy to talk more about that. We'll probably come to that a little bit later on in this conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Last of these, what one belief do you have that puts you at odds with either your peer group, your colleagues, or your family? It's a great question. Uh, it's a good question to, to maybe get me in trouble. Um, but I, I'm, a, I'm a skeptic and a contrarian by nature. So I think there are probably a lot of a lot of beliefs I have that, that, that you know, put me at odds with my peers. Um, in general, I'm unpersuaded by any kind of deference to authority. And so one of, you know, one of my beliefs is that I don't find appeals to scientific consensus in and of themselves to be particularly persuasive. And I actually just wrote an article in Skeptic Magazine about this topic that, um, that you can read if you want to hear more about that. Excellent. All right. Um, so we're here to talk about your work on what you're calling civic duty voting. Can you tell us what that is exactly? What's your basic grounds for defending it? And why do we need it? How would it work? What do you see as the payoffs? Yeah, so, so civic duty voting is just another term for, you know, what some people call compulsory voting in other countries. Um, it is a law that states that it's an expectation that you vote, that everyone who is eligible will show up to the polls when there's an election. And, and that compulsion could be done in, this, in, in a number of different ways, but the most common form is something like a fine. If you don't, you know, if you don't vote and you don't have a valid reason why you couldn't vote, then you have to pay a fine. So that's the that's the proposal that we essentially fine people for not voting, which might sound draconian to a lot of, you know, to a lot of Americans. Uh, the reason that I think this is a good idea is that in my mind, voting is a collective action problem. We are all better off if everybody votes. We And we can talk more about why I think that's the case. But none of us individually has any incentive to vote. It's not rational to vote. What are the chances that my vote's going to be pivotal in a U.S. presidential election living in Illinois? I don't know, one in, you know, one in a hundred million, one in a trillion, one in a, some, you know, somewhere in there, some infinitesimally small number such that it's not rational for me to bother to to even figure out where my polling place is, go find it, go wait in line, all of that. So I, so why should I bother doing it? But collectively, we're all better off if everybody votes. And how do we normally solve those kinds of collective action problems? We have some form of compulsion. We say, look, you're, you're, you're penalized if you don't pay your taxes. You're penalized if you don't dispose of your trash in the appropriate way. There should be a modest uh, penalty for, for not voting. All right. I... Um... When I heard you discussing this the first time, and then I read the report that your your discussion was based on, I'm just going to say all my libertarian hackles just went, you know, right? But I think this is, this is really a worthy conversation to have 
uh, and there are a lot. But I want to I want to talk to you. Some of the arguments that that I saw in the report and and I heard you made rested on this notion of representation. In other words, with so many people not voting, the preferences of the public actually aren't being revealed uh, via who gets elected or the policies that they enact. Is that would that be a fair summation of, of that part of your argument? Yes, absolutely. I think the set of people who vote under voluntary voting, they're an unusual, unrepresentative set of people. Um, it's some, of, some of them might just people who are bored and have nothing else to do. Some of them might be special interests who have particularly strong reasons to be showing up to, to vote. Um, but often it just ends up being kind of it's, it's richer people, it's older people, it's whiter people, uh, it's more educated people. So, so you've got a big subset of American citizens whose voices aren't being heard and their preferences aren't being reflected in elections and the policymaking process. Okay, so if, if someone takes somewhat uh, more of kind of this uh, Madisonian view of representation, it's at least articulated somewhat in like the Federalist Papers, it says, look, uh, representation isn't just about being a mouthpiece for the public, but it's actually about um, doing what's best for the society overall and not necessarily just those, uh, the majority in my congressional district or the majority in my state or even necessarily the majority in the country. It's not just doing what they want, but it's doing what is best for them. Is that notion of representation at odds with how you kind of think about it? Or is there still room for that kind of thinking along with this kind of mandatory voting scenario? Yeah, I, I don't think it is at odds. And I think I think there is room for that kind of thinking. Um, you know, one notion of democracy. So I certainly don't buy into the notion of democracy that the only job of an elected representative is to just do exactly what the public wants them to do in every instant, in every moment. We are electing somebody because we trust their expertise. We, we think they have information that we don't have and so forth. Um, and, and I think that's perfectly allowable within our framework of democracy, even with compulsory voting. Um, and then the question is, would we be better off if that delegate was selected by everybody rather than just by an unrepresentative set of people? But if if an elected official does what they believe is the right thing, even if it's unpopular in that moment, and then they convince the public that, in fact, it was the right thing and they get reelected, that sounds like democracy and accountability working the way it should. But I think we're better off if they're making that case to everybody rather than just an unrepresentative skewed set of those of the public. I want to follow up on that because you had some, there was really interesting opinion poll data in the report that where you ask people like what their attitudes were about uh, whether people should vote or not. You ask them, you know, is it just a privilege or is it, uh, is it a right only? Is it a duty? Is it a right and a duty? And you found that vast majority of people who responded thought it was both a right and a duty. And then in the poll, you asked them like, okay, well then should we just make it mandatory? And what you found is overwhelmingly people did not want to do that, which is kind of strange to, to put those two things side by side. What were some of the reasons people were giving for being uh, resistant to the idea of making uh, voting mandatory? I don't know if we investigated that really closely. And so I'm, I'm partly just speculating, but I imagine for some people, I mean, for some people, they might rationally oppose it because they worry that they, that, you know, this will be bad for their political preferences. If you're the kind of, if you're the kind of voter who's getting what you want out of the political system, then maybe you don't want to change the system. And so there are, of course, anytime you change the electoral system in any way, there's going to be potential winners and losers. And so some people might be rationally opposing it for that reason. And we can talk more about 
who would the likely winners and losers be, you know, if, if, we, if we change to something like compulsory voting? Um, there could also just be a lot of people for whom this is a foreign and new concept and they really haven't thought about it very much. And so their initial their initial reaction is, I don't want a whole new tax and a whole new form of government compulsion. And I'm 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 sensitive to that concern. I think that's reasonable. I think we should generally be wary and skeptical when when government tries to come in and say, let's do some new regulation or some new form of taxation or new form of compulsion, unless there's a really compelling reason. And we should ask for that compelling reason. So um, so I could imagine that some of those people it's a new idea. Their initial reaction is to be opposed, but but maybe they're open to being persuaded if if the appropriate case is made. I'm going to follow up on Guy's follow up. Sure. So uh, there's also a group uh, out there who I might be somewhat sympathetic to. Or like, look, you're going to push a whole bunch of people who don't think about any of this stuff, and they're going to be casting votes, and they don't know anything about anything. Uh, but they're going to show up and vote, vote, and then we're going to get all sorts of crazy policies. And I know you talked about that a little bit, uh, address that. Uh, uh, but but how do you respond to that, of, of the, these folks who, who are concerned that, well, listen, if people aren't showing up, either A, they're okay with the system, and they, or B, they just don't really care one way or the other, and they're not going to take the time to investigate all of these candidates for all these offices. And so they're just going to be casting a vote that that – is based on some whim or what the best commercial they saw. How do you respond to, to concerns like that? Yeah, I have, I have a few responses. I mean, one is that it's, it's not as if the status quo is working so great as it is. It's not like the people who are voting, we think, oh, those are the really enlightened, informed voters. They're the ones that should be deciding things. And the people staying home, they don't know anything. So I'm, I'm not convinced by that. Um, but even if it is true that the people who would be induced to vote by compulsory voting are on average a little bit less informed, I still think it's probably better to have them involved in the process than not. Um, even if, you know, even if they're not as informed as we would like, they, they have different preferences than the people who are voting, and it might be good to reflect those preferences in some way. Um, there's also some evidence that just by inducing people to vote, that will that will also induce them to become a little bit more informed. So they might... Um, they might learn information that they wouldn't have learned if there wasn't compulsory voting. So, of course, I'm not I'm not saying that things are going to be perfect and there aren't going to be concerns. Of course, no voter is going to be as informed as we would like in some first best world. Uh, but but I think my my sense of you know my read of the evidence is that um, that the voters aren't as uninformed as people think. Even the non-voters aren't as uninformed as people think. And having them in the political process is probably better than not. In another life, I dabbled a little bit in campaign polling, okay. right? And I'm just going to say, he's absolutely correct. Voters, even folks that you would identify as likely voters, are not marginally much more informed about things than uh, people who don't vote. Because uh, I've done a lot of polling, and there's an election coming up, or... I don't know who who are the they'll ask you who are the candidates you know so he's absolutely correct on, on that point. Now, according to the report, you're not actually advocating or for requiring people to show up and cast a vote for any given candidate or even really a candidate at all, uh, but requiring them basically to participate in the elections. Right? They could show up, they could take a ballot, they could not fill it out, they could check. A box. I think uh, is it Nevada that has this this box. It's like none of the above or something like that. Uh, so, so what does that mean for uh, 
how that would impact elections. How do you feel that, do you think a lot of people would take that or would a lot of people say, you know what, if I'm going to have to show up, I'm actually going to uh, take the time, figure out who these candidates are and cast a reasonable vote? Yeah, that, that is that is our proposal. Um, and, and I think the reason I think is fairly obvious, which is, you know, we you know, we feel like we could reasonably expect people to show up to the polls, but we can't compel you to vote for a candidate that you don't like. That seems like a violation of your free speech rights and so on and your free expression. So um, and, and in fact, you know, in Illinois and lots of places, there are lots of uncontested races. And it would certainly be wrong to say you have no choice but to vote for this one candidate. Um, so, so we're not saying you have to vote in every, you know, for a particular candidate or for any particular candidate. And like you said, you could just vote for none of the above. Um, so I think that would be great. Um, and I'm sure some voters would choose that none of the above option in Australia. They have a compulsory voting law and there is a none of the above option and some subset of voters do, do pick it, but it's not huge. So I think most of the voters would in fact think about the candidates, they would they would consider them and they would probably vote for their favorite one rather than picking the none of the above. But if in fact uh, the political parties didn't field any compelling candidates and a lot of people said none of the above, that might be a, an informative signal as well. That might be a valuable thing for us to learn that that none of the none of the candidates were very popular. I can't imagine an election where none of the candidates were very appealing, of course, uh, but hypothetically, yes. <laughs> Now, a, a lot of your argument is is based on or predicated on the fact that compared to other democracies, the U.S. has relatively low voter turnout, right? If you look at some of the other democracies around the world, uh, the, the percentage of people who could vote in the U.S. is significantly lower as those who do if you go to other, other countries. And there are some other countries. We have to remember some other countries that do have this kind of compulsory voting, right? So that makes a difference. But but by and large, it's like, look, there's not enough of us out there voting. And that in some way delegitimizes the democratic process. Am I understanding that part of the argument correctly? I think I think it does to some extent. I think when you have very low turnout and when the set of people voting are very unrepresentative of the eligible population, I think it does to some extent delegitimize democracy in the sense that it makes us wonder if, in fact, this really is the is this really the most preferred candidate and so forth. And uh, and so I think yeah, that's part of our argument is that things would be better if we had more people voting, but not just more, but a more representative set of people voting. So even even if turnout increases a little bit and turnout has increased a little bit in, in recent elections, and that's a good thing. But just because we went from, say, 60 to 65 percent turnout in a presidential election, that doesn't necessarily mean that we've made the voting population more representative. In fact, I have a study showing that typically get out the vote interventions make the, even though they increase turnout, they make the voting population less representative because they typically uh, induce people to vote who were more like the kinds of people who are already voting. And so we don't know if a change from 60 to 65 is good for representativeness or not. But if turnout gets close to 100 percent, then we know that the voting population is very representative. And so that's why that's why we would like to achieve something close to 100 percent turnout. OK, so just so I understand your position, um, your advocate. So I don't actually have to go to the poll to vote for a particular candidate. I have these none of the above options. You're advocating something like eligible voters have to well, not even attend, right? Because I guess you're okay with things like mail-in and and not actually going to a poll to actually submit your vote. Is that is that right? 
I mean, that's not explicitly discussed in the report, I don't think. But I think, yes, I think you should be you should be expected to to show up to the polls or cast a ballot in some way. However, your jurisdiction decides to accept your ballots. Are there exceptions to where a person has a has an excuse where they didn't have to pay the fine? Yes. I mean, and that is part of our proposal is that there would be excuses if you were sick, if you absolutely had to work and you couldn't, you know, you had to be traveling, you couldn't vote, et cetera. You know, so, of course, there would be there would be legitimate excuses for not voting. And, you know, in Australia, for example, the government is fairly, fairly open about what excuses it allows. Anything that even sounds reasonable, they will excuse and, and not and not expect you to pay the fine. And nevertheless, that's enough of an, you know, compulsory voting is enough to get more than 90 percent turnout in every Australian election. I'm wondering uh, about, well, like religious groups that might have religious or conscientious objections to that level of participation. Would, would that be a valid excuse under your proposal? I haven't heard that before. Um, I've, I'm not aware of any religious group that has an, a conscientious objection to coming to the polls. But I, I guess I guess that would be something that um, that if, if they really did. And, I, you know, there's the First Amendment and so forth. And I guess I guess uh, lawmakers would have to think about how to handle that. But maybe that would be one of the legitimate excuses. OK, well, so then I'd like to ask you about your views on eligibility here. So even if we had, say, a policy that everybody who's eligible to vote should be voting, barring a valid excuse, or they pay a fine, what about the current voting block of eligible voter? Do you think, would you also like to see that expanded or even restricted more? Like, do you think that everybody who should vote is already eligible or should be be working on that as well? That isn't something that we seriously considered when we, when we worked on this report, um, or that I've seriously, uh, seriously conducted research on. Um, I don't, I, you know, so I, so I'm not advocating for any specific changes in that regard. We could, of course, I mean, I think reasonable debates could be had about are the, are the criteria for citizenship the right ones or should they be tweaked in some way? Should the age cutoff be changed in some way? Um, are the, the felon disfranchisement laws that exist in some states, should they be reformed in some ways? There are, of course, lots of debates about that. I'm not, I'm not taking any specific position on those questions. I think the eligibility rule, you know, r- rules in the U.S. are not completely unreasonable. I think, they're, you know, I think they're not obviously broken, but we could have debates about them. One thing we did discuss in our report was um, not eligibility, but just the, the, the ease with which states and jurisdictions allow people to vote. I think that's something we probably do need to do a better job on. And especially if we're going to compel people to vote, it can't be the case that you show up to vote and there's a three hour line. Like that's just completely untenable. And so we would have to pair compulsory voting with reforms we should have already been implementing anyway, like doing everything we can to make it easier and lower cost for people to vote. I want to follow up on that. And this is probably grumpy old man James talking. And, And so you, you'll have to deal with that for a second. But I hear a lot of stuff about this. We make it too hard for people to vote. We make it too hard. Registration is a difficult thing. Getting to the poll. And I'm just, I'm like, really? I, in Oklahoma now, and I know not every state is like this, but in Oklahoma, we just uh, launched uh, in the last year where people can actually register online to vote. We have early voting, so you don't have to show up on election day. You can vote up like the the three days immediately prior to the election day. You can go and vote. Uh, we have mail-in ballots, uh, and we just reduce one time 
to, to do a mail-in ballot, you had to have a notarized, your signature had to be notarized. They eliminated that requirement. And so, uh, and I'm like, is it really that hard? Well, let's ask him, for whom do you think this is unduly hard? Well, that, that, that's my question. And I realized too, listen, I come, you know, from what some people might consider a relatively privileged background, right? Uh, grew up, you know, middle-class uh, America. We didn't have to travel real far to find a polling place, all of that kind of stuff. So I realized that, but I'm just, it just feels like that sometimes that's just an excuse not to do it. I don't disagree with you. I think I think most in most of the country, we make it reasonably easy and low cost for people to vote if they want to. But there are some places where you show up to the polls on election day and there's a three hour line. And that's the you know, and that's the thing that I think is just is just unacceptable and shouldn't it shouldn't be the case and should be addressed. And and I think maybe compulsory voting would actually make it more likely that that would be addressed because you'd have people who would be you know, really enraged about that. Um, but I think in, in general, I don't disagree with you. I would also, I mean, I, I also, you know, there's of course active debates about election security. Should we be doing more to, to make sure only eligible people are voting to mitigate fraud, to mitigate cybersecurity risks with elect, with voting machines and so forth. And I think those are all serious debates that we should be having. I could even imagine, I could imagine some, some, you know, entrepreneurial reformer saying, let's try to find bipartisan consensus by proposing compulsory voting along with other election reforms that make our electoral system more secure. I think that would probably be a good idea. I, I want to switch gears because there was something that really stood out as interesting to me about the report. Um, the report mentions uh, Jason Brennan. And for our listeners who don't know, uh, Jason Brennan is a professor at Georgetown who works in the area of political philosophy. I was particularly interested because I teach one of his papers every semester in my intro to philosophy class. The report mentions that he was uh, an advisor of sorts on this report, and I, I can see the obvious reason why. He is one of the most vocal opponents of this very idea that you're proposing. I'm just wondering, can you talk about that interaction? What, what contributions did he make and which, if any, really strengthened the, the the report itself? And did you find any of his objections uh, compelling or difficult to deal with? Sure. Yeah, we, we had a uh, we had a long conference call with Jason and I, I enjoy Jason's writings. He's very he's he's provocative and he's smart and he's thoughtful. And I have a lot of my students also read Jason Brennan as well. Um, and so that was a fun conversation. And I think it it did push us to think about Jason's arguments and try to make our report stronger by responding to some of those arguments. So in that sense, I think we benefited greatly from that conversation with Jason. I don't know if I found much of what he said compelling in and of itself, and I'm happy to talk more about that. I mean, Jason's coming from an unusual position in that he is he is opposed to democracy. Like he he actually doesn't believe in democracy. He he will he'll he'll he will you know he'll he's proud of that position. Um, and he thinks not everyone should be voting. He thinks maybe we should have a system where only the informed get to vote. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, I understand where he's coming from. I think probably all of us would understand the, 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 the brief impulse to favor that. But of course, the problem is, how do you decide who's informed? And I don't think I trust Jason or anyone else to decide that for <laughs> us. Um, if you ask Jason how we should decide who, how they're, who's informed, he'll, he'll actually, he'll tell you, well, what if you give them this test? And if you look at the test, um, the, the test to figure out whether you're informed sounds a lot like 
do you think like a George Mason economist, basically, you know? Um, and so there's a little bit of ideology mixed in with whether or not you're informed. Um, so anyway, so, so, so I just, I just disagree with Jason on that front. I think, uh, I think we don't have an obvious way to figure out who's informed and who's not. And therefore the, the sort of second best world is one in which we trust voters to decide for themselves, uh, given their limitations and we have democracy. And once we're in the world of democracy, are we better off with everybody voting or just a non-random subset of unrepresentative people voting? And I personally would, would be, think we're better off with everybody voting. I noticed that uh, in the report you, it discusses or it compares uh, voting or, or uh, to jury service, uh, jury duty. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more about that, that comparison and how the, you, you see them as kind of uh, similar in function and, and purpose? Yes, I do think that's an apt analogy. So there, we do have compulsory jury service in America. And, and if we didn't have compulsory jury service and we took a poll, we, we'd probably get a lot of people saying, that's strange. I don't, want, I don't want that. And of course, nobody wants to receive a jury summons. No one's happy when they get a jury summons in the mail. But we, we just kind of accept that as a part of life. And we think it's a reasonably fair system that allows us to have representative juries of our peers um, which is which is part of the you know part of the the liberal society that we want to live in, um, and so and so yeah, so jury service is exactly like that. We compel people to 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 show up for jury service. We we accept that as a part of life because we think it makes for a fairer, better system. And I think I think the same case could be made for compulsory voting. Nobody wants to vote, um, you know, in a, in and of in and of themselves. But we're better off if if a representative set of people are voting. And so and so if we had a system of compulsory voting, I think it would pretty soon become the system that we're used to. And we'd say, I guess it's a fair system. It's good for everybody to vote. Um, now there's another there's another discussion one could have, which is what what if we replicated the jury system for elections? Do we need everybody to vote or could we just pick a random subset of people? Because for representativeness, you don't need everyone to vote. You could just, you know, we're just going to randomly select 1% of the population and we're going to get them to vote and they're going to decide for us. And then, the, you know, and then, of course, you'd have concerns. You'd have concerns like um, maybe they're sampling error and you just got unlucky and you got a, you got a bad election outcome because you drew the wrong jurors or drew the wrong voters. It could be that there's more corruption potentially or more fraud of like gaming who gets selected or or buying off the voters that got selected and so forth. So um, that's a debate one could have. Uh, but I think but I think um, having some system of compulsion for voting makes a lot of sense in the same way that it makes sense for jury service. OK, so I want to follow up on that because uh, I noticed that 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 came up a lot in the um, interview I listened to you and your and your article and the report. And it was interesting to me because, getting back to Jason Brennan, this is exactly also an analogy that he likes to draw heavily upon. So uh, just for the sake of listeners, so Brennan's uh, use of the analogy is something like this. Let's suppose you were a defendant in a trial that has a very stiff penalty and all that. And somehow by, you know, magic or science or whatever, you 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 got access to the basis upon which the jury members were going to decide your verdict. And you found out that it was like very divorced from the actual evidence that was being presented in your trial. You found out that some of them were going to determine your, um, whether you're guilty or not guilty on irrational bases or immoral bases. Uh, you know, oh, look, he, he wears glasses. He couldn't have done it. Just some, some, or, you know, he's a white guy. He must be innocent. Something like that. Or you might even find out that some of the jury members just, barely understand what's even happening. They ha they are operating with such little information that it it wouldn't really matter if they wanted to 
uh, follow the evidence in the trial. And so now they've deliberated. You know that these are the, the, those are going to be the factors that contribute to their decision. And you're at the very moment when the verdict is about to be read. So you don't know what the verdict is, uh, but you're at that moment. And Brennan uses this thought experiment to say, like, do you think if that really were the case that you would have to accept the decision as legitimate, whatever it is? And he argues, surely you wouldn't think that you have to accept that as legitimate if those are the bases upon which uh, the, the jury's d decided your, your verdict. And it, you might still have to just get over it and let the bailiff haul you off if they find you guilty. It might not mean that you have anything you can do about it. But this issue of legitimacy is what he's after there. And so he says, well, can't we draw an analogy between that scenario and the actual voting block that we have if we do find out the bases upon which they're voting? Uh, and if you find out that, in fact, the people who vote have all those sorts of problems, right? They're voting on irrational bases, uh, maybe out of ignorance, or even just downright immoral bases. Doesn't that seem to undermine uh, the legitimacy of the outcomes of elections? And he says, don't I, it, just like it seems like in, in uh, the courtroom, it seems like I should have a right not to have a jury exercise that kind of state power over me if those are the bases upon which they're deciding my fate, shouldn't it also be the case that I have a right as a citizen not to have political power wielded over me uh, if those are the bases upon which the voting bloc is wielding that power? Can, what do you make of that analogy that Brennan uses and how might you respond? No, I think I think that's a, I think that's a great argument. I think it's a really interesting argument. And I think I mean, one way to say it is that is that Brennan is reasonably concerned about what you might call tyranny of the majority. Right. That's a concern with any democratic system is what if the majority just does something really bad that's say bad for the bad for the losing side of the election. And that seems that that's a very reasonable thing to worry about with any democratic system, not just with compulsory voting. Um, and there's there's a few things to say about that. One is you might think compulsory voting makes that uh, that concern a little bit less. So uh, under compulsory voting, you'd have to have a tyranny of at least 50 percent of the public to get some really bad outcome, whereas under the current system of voluntary voting, you could have maybe only 7% of the eligible voters in your jurisdiction deciding who's on your local school board, and you could have tyranny of tyranny of the 4% or something like that. So in some sense, I think um, compulsory voting mitigates Brennan's concern about tyranny of the majority a little bit. But it's still a big concern, and I think that's a concern for any democratic system that we have to deal with somehow. One way that we deal with it is we say, we don't decide on everything democratically. There are some things, there are some fundamental rights that you have as an American that cannot be infringed or imposed upon by the democratic process. You have the right to free speech, you have the right to religious freedom and the free press and so on. So we have a set of things that we've written down and we've said these are out of the bounds of democratic decision making. Um, and that's one way of protecting ourselves from this tyranny of the majority. And of course, the problem is there's only so many things you can write down like that. And everything else beyond that, everything else that's not explicitly covered under the Constitution is at least ambiguous. And we're going to have to have some process for deciding what what, what is our policy going to be in this other area. And it seems to me like democracy is the best of all the imperfect ways to go. It seems like it's better than it's better than the alternatives. It's better than authoritarian dictatorship, even if it's a dictatorship of George Mason economists and philosophers like Jason Brennan. It's better than it's better than having a civil war every time we disagree over, say, abortion policy or something like that. So, um, so again, I mean, it's you know not to say that not to say the status quo is perfect, uh, but it seems like democracy is a better way to resolve those disagreements than any of the other alternatives. 
And if we're having a democracy, I'd rather have everyone involved in that democracy as opposed to just a non-random self-selected sample. Well, okay. I, we can, we can leave Brennan behind. I'm, I'm, I'm interested though in how optimistic are you? Like, I mean, okay, so here's your proposal. Do you see this happening anytime soon? I mean, what, what is your, what is your, what do you envision is the, is the future of this, of this proposal? I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but I think it's a serious proposal that, that, that people should be debating and deliberating about and discussing. I'm not expecting elected officials themselves to be in favor of it anytime soon because elected officials are benefiting from the system as it is. So why would you, why would you vote to change the system that got you elected to begin with? Um, but I could also imagine, I could also imagine several ways that this could happen. I could imagine some locality starting off by implementing this just in local elections or maybe maybe a county or a state could implement it even for federal elections within their county or state. And you could imagine that that would induce other jurisdictions to also want to implement it in order to sort of keep up, right? So imagine, imagine that one county implements compulsory voting for statewide elections. That would essentially increase the weight of that county in statewide elections. And then other counties within that state would also have a strong incentive to try to pass compulsory voting to sort of keep up with them and make sure their county is equally representative. So there are different ways I could imagine this eventually happening. And maybe maybe it's a longer time horizon, but it's something that we would like people to be discussing alongside lots of other reforms that we're discussing all the time. So so no, I'm not expecting it to happen tomorrow, but I but I think we should be having this debate. And I think and I think it's a good thing for us to be having that debate. One of the reasons why I thought this would be a great conversation is we are in a presidential election year. Uh, and so people are going to be thinking about voting, thinking about the rules, uh, something that you had mentioned earlier that I think is really, really true. As soon as you start putting up rules as far as how the process is going to work, you almost, by definition, are going to create winners and losers, right? Depending on how those rules are constructed. Uh, and uh, I want to give you just a second to talk about, uh, you had mentioned that some people would see this as, oh, this is going to make my side more likely to win, or some people are going to see this as this might make my side more likely to lose. Uh, talk a couple of minutes about that. Sure. Yeah, I think there are some there are some clear predictions we could make. Um, so if you just think about who votes under voluntary voting, it does tend to be richer, older, church going people, whiter people, also more educated people. Um, and it tends to be more politically extreme people and more partisan people. Moderates are less likely to turn out to vote under voluntary voting. And so if I think about some of those implications, I might expect to see less polarization because the moderates would be voting even more and they would be a more, even an even more important part of the voting population. So there might be some extra incentive for, for parties to nominate more moderate candidates and for those moderate candidates to try to cater their positions to the median voter rather than to the base that's more likely to vote. And so that would be one implication. There likely would be some partisan implications, although it's a little bit tricky to make predictions because on the one hand, um, say poor, non-white, younger people, they're less likely to vote under voluntary voting and they typically vote for the Democrats. And so you might think the Democratic Party would benefit from this, although the Democratic Party is increasingly becoming the party of rich, educated people who live in cities. And those people actually vote at really high rates. And so, um, and so I think there's a little bit of tension there. I think things might be changing a little bit over time. And it's not so obvious which party wins out. It might vary from place to place. And it might really be which kinds of candidates win out within each party rather than which party gets more seats. 
Um, so it's a, it's, it's tricky. And obviously we don't know all of the answers. There obviously would be winners and losers. And that's partly why there's going to be some opposition to any electoral reform. But I think on net, I think those kinds of changes are good. I think we want, we want elected officials who better represent the public, who have to work harder, who have to avoid corruption, who have to moderate their positions in order to please the median citizen rather than, rather than the, the typical voting base that they cater to. We're going to have you give us your 60-second elevator speech on why the public and policymakers should embrace this idea. After that, I want to ask you a couple of questions just about the current political climate and and a couple of observations that I'd like to hear from you. But you got 60 seconds. You've got somebody on the elevator. What are you going to say to them that says, here's why you should embrace this? Sure. Yeah, I hope I've given it to, to some extent already, but we, I think we want everybody voting. We want everybody voting, but, we, but they, those people don't have the incentive to do it themselves. But if everybody votes and, and we can do it with a simple fine or something like that, if everybody votes, we'll get better elected officials. We'll get better representation. Our elected officials are going to work harder. They're going to have more incentive to avoid corruption. They're going to have more incentive to avoid polarization and gridlock and actually moderate their positions and do a better job. And yes, It'll be annoying that we have to show up to the polls and it'll be annoying if we forget to vote and we have to pay a fine. But I think the benefits we'll get in terms of better governance are going to be well worth the hassle. Excellent. Excellent. This thing seems very similar to that notion of nudging people. Was it Thaler, Peter Thaler, yeah. that, that developed that notion of this? Is, we're kind of just nudging them in the right direction. You said earlier they can't compel them to vote for a given candidate or even cast a vote at all. But showing up likely will produce someone who will go ahead and cast a ballot. So you're kind of a little bit of a nudge there. It seems to me anyway. It is. Yeah, there's, I mean, in, in my mind, there's a key difference, which is that with compulsory voting, there's a clear collective action problem that you're trying to solve. Um, with nudging, it's a little bit more paternalistic. With nudging, it's just, we think that you are making a bad decision for yourself and I, Richard Thaler, know better, and I'm going to try to nudge you in the right direction. So I, we're not doing the same kind of thing. We're saying, look, you're behaving rationally by not voting. I understand why you're not voting. And it's we're not telling you you're making a mistake by not voting. But if everybody had an incentive to vote, we would be better off. And let's solve that collective action problem together. Very good. So we're in the middle of an election year. We've got a campaign going, all sorts of craziness happening I want you to think not about this year per se, but I want you to think what are what's a trend or a couple of trends, first of all, that has you concerned? As you look out on the horizon, what are you most concerned about in American politics? So one of my big concerns um, is that we only get extremists running for office. And this isn't a new thing, but it seems to be just kind of gradually getting worse and worse every year. You know, ever since the 1970, it's just a little bit worse, you know, over over 50, gradual 50 year increase in polarization in Congress and increasing the extremism of candidates. And, and so that's a big concern. One one reason it's so so puzzling is that we know we have lots of evidence that more moderate candidates do better in elections. So if if we did run a moderate, they would be much more likely to win. And so the parties are both making mistakes here. If the parties could find moderates and field them and get them to run, they would win more seats. But they're leaving votes and seats on the table, part maybe because they themselves are just extremists and they can't help themselves. But for whatever reason, we can't even find moderate candidates who want to run for office. So that's a trend that I find to be um, interesting and troubling. And I, and I think a lot about that in my research. Another trend that I find to be fascinating, maybe not troubling, but just fascinating, is the thing I mentioned earlier, that there's been this modest realignment between the parties where the Democratic Party went from the party of the working class 
to the party of rich, educated people who live in cities. And that's, I think, I think that's a fascinating trend that I think probably doesn't bode well for the Democratic Party because rich, educated people who live in cities are not enough people to be winning federal elections. And so I find that to be fascinating. It's not necessarily a problem, but I'm curious to see how that's going to play out. And I, I, I don't think I don't think things can stay the way they are right now. I think one or the other party is going to find some way to adjust to to win the votes that are on the table. I've decided to leave the most critical, most important question we could possibly ask you for the very end. And you're going to be able to answer it fairly quickly an issue very near and dear to my heart and James's. If you had to choose immediately after this interview, would you rather watch Seinfeld or 30 Rock? <laughs> Seinfeld. I love Seinfeld. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Damn it, Anthony, Thank we were almost much. friends. <laughs> <laughs> this is a perennial debate that we have, James and I, and I'm, I'm team 30 Rock all the way, but all right. All right. So we talked about what has you concerned. Now, as you look out on the horizon, what makes you somewhat optimistic? What makes you think, you know what? Things are going to work out. Things are going to be okay. Well, I guess, yeah, I guess, I mean, I, I tend to be the optimist uh, among political scientists saying the system doesn't work as badly as everybody thinks. And some of that is just looking at the evidence. So there's been all of this cause for alarm. Everybody thought that Trump was going to be the end of democracy. And he wasn't, he, you know, even though even though people are still saying things like that, um, this that our political system has turned out to be maybe more resilient than we thought, um, even in the presence of not just one, but probably multiple presidents who don't care very much about the institution and and are willing to you know subvert the system to their advantage, and that the institution is relatively resilient. And I think the voters, although they're not perfect and they're not as informed as we would like, the voters are paying some attention. And if you put a reasonable candidate in front of the voters, they will vote for that reasonable candidate. And so and so, I'm somewhat hopeful that that democracy is gonna is gonna stick it out. And, uh, and perform well in the near future in American politics. But, um, but there's also lots of causes for alarm as well. Our guest today has been Dr. Anthony Fowler, professor at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. I don't know if it's bad form to plug someone else's podcast on your own, but I'm going to do it because I really do think Not Another Politics Podcast is a fantastic podcast. It's excellent. I listen to it. Uh, and in inevitably, because there's three of you on there, somebody will be saying something. And I'm like, no, that's wrong. And then somebody else will come on and say something, you know, contradict. And I'm like, that's right. You so, uh, so it really is. I love the fact that you explore research, you explore uh, what is going on. Uh, and so it's a great one. I want to recommend it to folks. Uh, but we really thank you for sharing your thoughts and ideas uh, with us here on Curiosity Porn. Uh, and this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This is really fun. Thanks for listening to Curiosity Porn with the two best intellectual pole dancers in the United States, Dr. Guy Crane and Professor James Davenport. If you'd like to share a comment about today's episode, suggest a guest or topic, or just leave a compliment or complaint, you can reach us at C-U-R-P-R-N at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you. As we wrap up, Possibilities would like to give a special thank you to this episode's sponsor, Palmer Law, paving the way for creative expression in our community. Their commitment to our vision allows us to continue to have these conversations 
We are grateful for your continued support, Palmer Law.